This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Good morning, Trinity. My name is Zach Lutz. I'm one of the pastors here. So glad to be with you. Um, You know, we are coming up on like the year anniversary of COVID. And I'm sure you guys like probably remember when this was setting in, wherever it was that you were. Um, Some of you remember what we were going through at Trinity Church. And you remember that Ronnie was in Europe and Jeff, one of the previous pastors, and I scrambling uh, to put together some cameras and lights and recording equipment back there at that bookshelf. And it looked and sounded awful. It sounded real bad. Uh, This experience of COVID has changed all of us. Uh, it's changed our, the way that our church has had to function. Uh, it's changed the skill sets that I've needed to learn. I'm sure that you have had to change in many of the things that you do. Many of you suddenly became teachers. That was exciting. Um, these experiences change us. And as Christians, we believe that an experience of God's mercy changes us. And we've been in a sermon series on the book of Jonah, and we've seen uh, roughly in chapter one that God's mercy can be uncomfortable. And we saw in chapter two that to apprehend his mercy, we need to know ourselves and know others. But it's always about God's mercy. And today we're going to see from Jonah chapter three that experiencing God's mercy fundamentally changes who we are. It's an experience that reorients many things in our lives. It changes the way that we leave the house. It changes the way that we get up in the morning. It changes everything that we do when we experience God's mercy. But before I turn to God's word, I do want to give us a little recap on Jonah. I think the story of Jonah is familiar to most of us. I'm going to try to do this as succinctly as I can. Jonah's a prophet. He gets word from the Lord that he's supposed to um, deliver uh, God's word to the enemies of God's people, actually, in Nineveh, in Assyria, he decides he's going to go the other way. Uh, God catches up with him, though, because it's not that hard for God to catch up to Jonah, Um, and sends a storm after him, and it panics the sailors so much, and Jonah provides this bright solution that they should throw him overboard. Uh, And so they do. I think he's probably expecting that he's going to die, but God's like, I'm not done with you yet. Appoints a fish. Fish swallows him for three days. And as he's in the belly of that fish, uh, Jonah repents. And so God looks at the fish and talks to the fish, and the fish spits him out on dry land. And so this is where Jonah chapter 3 picks up and where we're going to see a people changed by God's mercy. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. We do this for reverence of his holy word. Again, we're in Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed 
God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. So as Christians, we're firmly convinced that an experience with God's mercy changes us. And from this passage, I think we're going to see that it changes us in primarily two ways. Uh, and it, this change can be seen by like markers. So it marks us or, or we, we live a certain way. Um, we live as, mar- as a people marked by repentance. That's point one. And we live as a people that are marked as people who proclaim. We're marked by repentance and proclamation. So first, Repentance. Have you ever experienced an invitation that wasn't genuine? In undergrad, I did a summer internship uh, in San Diego. I was kind of working on the U.S.-Mexico border with some missionaries, uh, and I was going to have a co-intern of sorts, and I arrived before her. And so when we went to go pick her up from the airport, um, my boss asked her when, when we picked her up, like, hey, um, how are you doing? Do you need anything? Do you need, like, food, water? Are you, are you hungry at all? And she was like, no, no, I'm good. Um, and so he said, okay, great. Well, we're going to go in. I'm going to kind of show you the sites and, and then the rough area where we're going to be working. And we went about our days and our internship. And at the end of the internship, some three months later, we had an exit interview um, or a debrief of sorts. And it came out at that time um, that when she had landed, she was actually very much hungry. She had not eaten anything that day. But her experience in that question was that it was improper for her to respond with the answer yes when asked if she was hungry. I, I got I to gotta be honest with you. I don't know if it's like a Southern thing or if it's just something that's like involved like with her family. But it's just like that it's wrong a little bit to take the first question if you're asked if you're hungry. And you're supposed to say no. And then they ask again. And that's the genuine request. Margarita has a similar story. Also in college, uh, she and a friend are talking about how badly they want an office hour with a professor. Uh, just like a, a kind of a one-on-one meeting where you can discuss um, an assignment or, or what have you. And so this friend gets one of these office hours, and she's describing it to Margarita. And uh, during her description, she goes, hey, would you want to come with me? And Margarita goes, yeah. And you could just see it on the friend's face. And she goes, oh, I, like, where I come from, that answer should have been no. And then I would ask again if I actually meant it. That would be the genuine invitation I don't know if you guys have experienced anything like that. It's like disorienting when you're like, whoa. Now, it's also like a a microcosm of what like cross-cultural ministry is or doing anything cross-culturally, right? Just like these things where you're just totally missing each other. But a disingenuine invitation throws us off in a different way. 
And I think the question that I want to ask us today, are, are God's invitations disingenuine? Like, are they ever backhanded or ployed to kind of uncover who you really are? Because I think, honestly, we interpret those invitations that way quite often. I think that many of us were probably raised in a culture and among a people that say that people deserve only a certain amount of chances, only a certain amount of retries, only a certain amount of mulligans before it's just too much. You, you, know, you no longer get any more. Now, some of this, I'm just going to take a little caveat, is um, pragmatic for who we are as human people. Some people aren't interested in changing. And so you draw boundaries in your life. And God actually does a similar thing with his holiness. He draws boundaries in his life. But the invitation into repentance to make that relationship right is always genuine. I can't say the same for myself. Sometimes when I draw those boundaries in my life, my invitation is repentance is actually, I, I wish that they wouldn't. I just, I don't want anything to do with them anymore. Here in our passage, we see a genuine invitation to repentance. God speaks to the Ninevites. And I just want you to listen to what they hear. Like, listen to what the Bible says that they hear. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah, verse 2, and, or is saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. We're in verse 2 now. And call out against it the message that I will tell you. And if you skip down to verse 4, you'll see that Jonah began to go into the city. And it says that he's going according to the word of the Lord. And he called out against it. And here's what he said. Yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. Like, that's God's speech to Nineveh. I don't know about you, but that doesn't seem very merciful to me. Imagine somebody just like walking down the street, just yelling. 40 days in San Juan will be overthrown. You're like, okay, is there good news? It's just bad news? Where's God's genuine invitation to repentance? And this is where the irony of Jonah really sets in. Because to understand where that genuine invitation of repentance comes from, we have to understand the purpose of prophets. Prophets were the mouthpieces of God, and they often had very difficult things to say to God's people. Very difficult proclamations about who they were supposed to be. But it wasn't just for the sake of foretelling the future. They're not just fortune tellers. God sent the prophets to Israel as a genuine invitation to change. They were supposed to hear the prophecies and say, who knows, maybe God will relent. And the irony in our passage is that it's not Israel that's doing this, but that it's God's enemies that are doing this. It's the enemy of God's people. You see, they recognized that God didn't have to speak to them first. God could have saw their wickedness from afar and just smote them. Like, he didn't need to announce what he's going to do. If he's really the God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea, and he can do whatever he wants, and we've crossed a boundary of his, he's free to do whatever he wants. They saw that the mercy was in persevering with Jonah, not letting him drown himself in the ocean, but sending a fish. They understood that when God spoke to them by way of a prophet, 
I mean, they didn't even know if God's mercy was going to be there. And they said, who knows? But let us repent anyway. God hasn't changed. God still genuinely invites you into repentance. He doesn't quite send Jonah's maybe in the same way, but he does send us his speech in his word. And by the power, and through his word, and by the power of his Holy Spirit, he convicts us of sin. And sometimes those things are hard to hear. Just like hearing prophets is hard. We don't like seeing our own sin, but it's a genuine invitation into repentance. And that genuine invitation into repentance is an invitation into deeper relationship with him where you will experience the depth of his mercy. You see, God is grieved that you keep going back to that website again, again, and again. But he's not surprised, and he extends a genuine invitation to repent. God is grieved by your discontent with yourself and your constant comparison with the lives of others, but he isn't surprised. He genuinely invites you into repentance. God isn't surprised by your passive aggressiveness or your self-centeredness. He genuinely invites you into repentance. Now, what does repentance look like? Like, what, is it, what does it mean to repent? Because you see, there is an acknowledgement that sin has consequences, and that we don't like the consequences, but that may lead you to repentance, but that's really just self-pity. Like, I'm a little sad that my sin has consequences, but I'd actually still prefer to do my sin. Repentance requires two things, admitting sin for what it is, that it is in fact wrong, and also turning from it to cling to what God offers to, to replace it, what we should have been clinging to God for instead of turning to this other thing. Other authors use this word for the second point, like rebuking, rejecting, forsaking, disowning this other thing, and owning a new thing. It requires looking deeper not just at the action, but it requires asking why I can't stop thinking about that other person or what they own or the life that they live. It requires asking why I can't find contentment in Christ. Why my loneliness is paralyzing when Jesus says he's a friend. A basic example of this in my own life uh, is the first five or six years or so that Margaret and I were married, I drove a 98 Honda Civic. It was a two-door stick shift car. The AC didn't function. Oil leaked uh, into the uh, clutch so that it actually skipped quite violently in like first and second gear. Uh, the windows eventually didn't roll down, which without AC and in Midwest summers was brutal. Like open my door at a stoplight. The radio eventually broke. But what I found in myself was actually that I started taking pride in the kind of car that I drove. 
And it's silly because there's nothing prideful about driving that car. But I could tell my story such that I'm the kind of man that drives one of these cars. But really, the root of that pride is the same sort of pride that I might say if I was driving a $200,000 car. My possessions define me, make me who I am. You see, you might say, like, the basic level is that, like, I need to trust God with my transportation. But the deeper level is that I actually need to trust God with who I am in him. And that the stuff that I own can't define me. Repentance requires acknowledging that it's not only a sin, but that I need to turn to Christ to find that thing that I'm so desperately searching for. And the beautiful thing about God's invitation to repentance is that he offers it again and again and again. God's mercy is such that it's not a disingenuine invitation. Because if we offend someone again, again, and again, and again, we often get very tired about it. And that's, that's not how God acts. Because God's mercy is actually infinite. And when we experience that kind of mercy, we start living a life that is consistently marked by repentance because that pride is not going to be rooted out in one go. That pride I'm going to come back to every minute of every hour of every day for the rest of my life. People who have experienced God's mercy live a life that is marked by genuine repentance. But there's something funny that happens. When you start drawing on that well of infinite mercy and you start living a life of repentance, something, something happens. You become a people, you become a person that proclaims. It just kind of bubbles up and overflows because you've like tapped into a well that's just like a spring is just bubbling over. I've got another example. When Margaret and I were first married, um, I had a fish tank. And we had, I don't know, five or six fish. Some of them would like jump out, you know, and then we'd come home from work and they'd be dead on the counter. Um, but every once in a while, this fish tank, I had some plants in it. So it was like supposed to be like self-filtering or something, but it was never that. I still had to clean it out. Um, and I had to empty out the fish tank and kind of scrub, you know, the, the crevices and stuff to get, to get all the stuff off, like a Finding Nemo sort of situation. Uh, and so the thing is I had a 10-gallon fish tank and a five-gallon bucket. So, like, you know, I'd walk up with my five-gallon bucket, and I'd set it there, I'd get my siphon out, and then I'd, like, you know, start the siphon, put it in the bucket, and I'd, like, start scrubbing stuff inside the, the thing. And, like, I knew this. I knew this. Ten-gallon tank, five-gallon bucket. Like, knew it. But probably every other time that I did it, I'm, like, scrubbing away, not paying attention, because this thing doesn't have a motor. It's silent. I'm not thinking about it. And I look back... You know, there's five gallons in the bucket and two or three on the floor. It just bubbled up and spilled out all over the place.
God's mercy is a lot bigger than a 10-gallon fish tank. Let me tease this out a little bit. You see, Jonah experienced God's mercy, and the first time he ran away, God caught up with him. Uh, And having experienced God's mercy a second time, Jonah obeys, and he goes to Nineveh and proclaims. But Jonah's proclamation doesn't appear to be bubbling up from an overwhelming sense of God's mercy in his life. Jonah actually seems angry and vindictive. Jonah hates Nineveh. Why is Jonah like this? Like having experienced God's mercy isn't, and having repented, isn't he supposed to be a changed person and overflowing? Well, again, we have to go back to look at what the purpose of the prophets were. Jonah is like this micro example of what Israel actually was. And Israel was actually supposed to be the kind of people that bubbled over at the experience of blessing and mercy of God, that it just overflowed their bounds and spilled all over the floor. When God spoke to Abraham, he's the father of Israel, he said, hey, your children, they're going to be so blessed. They're going to have so much blessing that it's going to go out to the rest of the nations and the rest of the nations are going to be blessed. In Deuteronomy, when God's giving the law, you know like when you start those Bible in a year programs, we've a lot of us have probably fallen off by this point in the year. Um, but you, you start those Bible in a year programs, you get to Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you start reading those laws and it's a struggle. It's a struggle, right? At the beginning of those laws, God gives a little description about what they're for. He says, actually, these laws are a mercy to you in my speech because you're going to live lives that are so radically changed by my mercy that it overflows into the nations around such that they actually come to you and they look at you and they say, what are you guys doing different? That's who Israel was supposed to be. And again, the irony in our passage is that it's not Israel that's doing this, but it's Nineveh. You see, Nineveh, in verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed God. And they called out. They proclaimed for a fast and put on sackcloth. And in verse 6, it doesn't say that Jonah spoke to the king. It said that word reached the king. They overflowed with this reality of like, God is holy and we must do something about it that even the king heard. And how did the king respond? But he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes. And then he himself proclaimed again and issued a proclamation to his subjects and it overflows again. And interestingly enough, in Jonah 3 and 4, it overflows into herds and flocks. It's just a fascinating little addition. You see, again, the stinging rebuke for Israel is that they were not the people they should have been. They didn't lead lives marked by repentance. And they didn't start that siphon that just bubbled over. And Nineveh did. Now, Nineveh wouldn't continue doing this. We do know that Assyria returns to its wicked ways and falls under the judgment of God later. And we also know that Israel never did a great job of actually living a life 
marked by repentance so that our lives overflow with the proclamation of God's mercy. Do our lives overflow with the proclamation of God's mercy? It's quite difficult to find like a specific application that works for all of us in this room because we're all, although similar, quite different people. And so the proclamation of God's mercy is probably going to look quite different from each one of us. But on a grand scale, why is it that evangelism is so hard? Evangelism's hard, right? Like, I'm including myself. It's not easy. I'm going to say that the reason that evangelism is so difficult is because we tend to believe that we need to have all of the answers. Or the reason that we see sometimes our evangelism bears so little fruit is because we walk around acting as if we do have all of the answers. Now, don't get me wrong. We do have some, and God has answers in here. But proclamation by a life that is marked by repentance has a fundamentally different feel. It means when we bump up against those realities and those people in our lives who don't share our, our same rootedness in a life of repentance, they hear not only our words about what is true, but they also see our hypocrisy in some sense, our failure to do it right, and yet our deliberateness to go back to the mercy of God and repentance. So that evangelism doesn't just become empty words of things that no one does, but becomes actually embodied about how desperately we need Jesus. Evangelism becomes what we naturally do not only in our speech, but in everything that we do. The way that we date, the way that we raise children, the way that we do our jobs, the way that we take care of our lawns and our houses, the way that we neighbor, it fundamentally changes how we approach the world. Nineveh didn't even know that there was a well of God's mercy to draw on. But we know, because we know how deep the well goes. How deep does it go? Christ shows us. You see, Christ purchased our mercy for us. We, like Nineveh, were in a position where we only deserved God's wrath and judgment. We, like ancient Israel, had hearts that when God came to speak to us, they were too hard to hear. And deaf, we didn't want to hear it. In fact, another prophet would describe Israel and our situation and all of humanity as dead bones. You see, Jesus didn't need to just show us how to be merciful. It's not good enough that Jesus is just a good example for us. Jesus needed to make dead people alive. And to do this, he was going to have to die. And I would just like you to picture the mercy of this. Strung up on the cross, dying, as people are spitting on him. 
He cries out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Do you see that mercy? Do you see how deep that mercy goes? It's so deep that it's not just an invitation to repentance just once or twice. Jesus wasn't going through all of this just to give you one extra chance. Jesus was going through this to give you a new life, a life that's marked by repentance, constant repentance, every minute of every hour of every day, in a life that's so abundant in God's mercy that it just overflows and spills out into everything that you do. So that, of course, your words declare, yes, the reason that I can be so loving and so humble in this particular instance is because I've been shown so much mercy. God's mercy is so unbelievably deep. And when you draw upon that in a life of repentance, it will fundamentally change who you are. Jesus will change who you are from the inside out. God's mercy changes us because Jesus changes us.